Welcome to Thrive Subscribe, the podcast channel for community pharmacy teams. We share insight and inspiration each week on Thursdays so you can grow your community pharmacy practice. During the coronavirus pandemic, you can also join us on Saturday mornings for a CPESN USA Best Practices episode. On this week's episode, we'll talk with Dr. Jeff Wall. He's a clinical pharmacist at Iowa Methodist Medical Center. I had the chance to talk with Dr. Wall earlier this week, and we discussed everything from personal protective equipment and chloroquine compounds to convalescent plasma therapy. He is just a wealth of information, and I'm really excited for all of you to listen in to this short 25-minute podcast to make sure you have all the details you need to understand the current evidence surrounding treatment options for COVID-19. So this episode, COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines, Testing, and PPE is accredited for CE by CE Impact. Um, so it's continuing accreditation, excuse me, it's continuing education for pharmacists. Um, with that, a couple of things to go over, but Dr. Wall has no disclosures to report. And our official learning objectives today are to discuss the evidence surrounding current COVID treatment options and review safety precautions for pharmacy staff. Details on how to claim credit will be shared at the end of this week's episode. And I just also do want to give a special thanks to Drake University P4 student pharmacist, Caitlin Brugan. Um, she assisted Dr. Wall with a literature search, and she'll join us today um, to give a little bit of an overview on that. So with that, let's listen in. Well, Jeff, just a, a big thank you um, for all the work you're doing at your practice site um, for taking care of patients. Um, and we especially appreciate you and your student pharmacist, Caitlin, taking time out today to be here with us um, to give our audience an update on, on what's going on with the evidence-based recommendations for COVID-19 treatment. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Sure. Um, so today we're going to spend most of our time just um, exploring the evidence around treatment for COVID-19, and I'll have you talk a little bit about um, how we know what's evidence-based and, and what's what's going on with some clinical trials. Um, I also want to let our listeners know, you know, we're going to try to keep this at about 25 minutes. We know everybody's pressed for time. We'll have a full um, one-hour CE coming up in a couple of weeks, weeks where Jeff will be back to, to dig in with more detail. Um, but for frame of reference, today is Tuesday the 24th, and um, Jeff, your practice site is based in Des Moines. So at this point, um, just this morning, I looked up on the John Hopkins website and see you have about 105 confirmed cases, and you said you have about one patient in ICU. Is that is that good context yeah, for so where for, you're yeah, at? Currently, we have, a, we, have a, we have a critically ill patient with COVID. As I understand it, we don't have any other positive COVID patients in the hospital right now, no. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, we know across the country, um, we're all kind of bracing with what we see in the epicenter of New York State, where they're being hit with uh, 23,000 confirmed cases of this morning. Um, and we know this is only going to rise by the time our podcast is available. So can you talk a little bit to us about, you know, as, as pharmacists that are listening in, um, knowing where we're at with testing, we're not testing rapidly enough, we're not doing contact tracing, um, you know, what, what all that looks like. Um, we don't have the, the tests that we saw in other countries like South Korea. Um, so when, when should pharmacists and when should patients pursue a COVID-19 test? I mean, what does that look like? What does that triage point look like? And, 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 you know, to preface all of this, a couple of things to say is one, you know, as you've just pointed out, you know, things are changing, you know, day to day, hour to hour. And so, you know, 
keep that in mind, you know, keep, you know, have a good, you know, couple of, of, of uh, sources for information that you think are, are, you know, reliable sources that are unbiased sources that have, that have as much evidence behind them as you can to try and help make the decisions you're going to be doing. I think it's really important. Um, and the second is, is to keep in mind that, that, you know, we, the, the gold standard for testing for a lot of this stuff is going to be randomized controlled trials. And that is, you know, those things are underway, but they're not going to be done anytime soon. And so we've got to mm-hmm. make the best decisions with the best information we have on hand right this second. So, you know, you're correct that right this second, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a scarcity of tests that's changing slowly. Um, I got an email yesterday from one of the companies that does a lot of, of uh, respiratory viral testing, the, the BioFire company, and uh, they they are, are, are planning on shipping uh, their PCR testing, which would allow us to do PCR testing in-house uh, within only a couple of hours, which is kind of nice, and that that's supposed to be mm-hmm. with us hopefully by the beginning of April and then uh, um, um, or the middle of April. And then uh, a couple of months down the line on that, they're actually adding COVID-19 to their standard respiratory uh, virus panel that we currently use extensively in most hospitals to look for things like influenza and other things like that. So hopefully that will be changing. I was reading just yesterday where a couple of of companies have gotten the FDA go-ahead for their rapid kits. And so hopefully they can ramp up production uh, because in the end that if there's a number one weapon that's going to that's going to allow us to 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 fight this off. It's going to be you know the ability to to rapidly test people and and be able to, to make decisions based on their positivity or negativity. And, and right now, a lot of the information we have, it, we just we can't rely on because we really don't know how many people actually are asymptomatic carriers or have mild symptoms and didn't even think about it and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's that's the number one thing. So I think from the pharmacist's perspective, I think that 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 what what I've read and what we're certainly doing here at Unity Point is that if you have someone who has symptoms of the you know of this the disease and the the two or three kind of cardinal symptoms and then you know again you read about all sorts of stuff but it, but but reading the stuff from China it seems like the three things that the overwhelming majority of people had was fever, dry cough, and sore throat. And I would say that if you have somebody who has two of the three of those, with one of those being the fever in particular, they need to contact their healthcare professional. And by contact, I mean call. Uh, um, mm-hmm. There's no need to, 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 to you know, drive to the, to the clinic or the hospital or the emergency department because uh, all you'll end up doing is, is either getting exposed yourself or exposing other people unnecessarily. And almost all clinics have got a triage phone line going on now. And they'll say, well, you know, what other symptoms do you have? Now, certainly, certainly if you have other respiratory symptoms like you're short of breath, you're having a hard time catching your breath, you're getting, you know, you're, you're, you're dizzy, you know, things along those lines. And that's something that obviously needs to, to be assessed by a healthcare professional because you might need oxygen therapy of some sort or another, maybe as little as just having, you know, a couple liters of oxygen in nasal prongs might need all the way up to being intubated. It just kind of depends. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But without those, uh, there's really not a lot of other treatment that we would do besides get, pl- you know, get rest, drink plenty of fluids and, and, you know, and, and just try and do your best. Cause I mean, it, it would be the same it would, it would be with any other respiratory virus. We're not going to uh, uh, start any, any uh, prohibitive or any treatment currently, I don't think, uh, on outpatients who don't have severe symptoms. Now, there are, there are studies going on taking a look at prophylactic use of some of the drugs that we're going to talk about in patients at very high risk. But again, that data is, is, is in its very early stages. We have no 
information on it, and given as many of the pharmacists in the audience are well aware of the uh, limited number of, 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 of uh, for example, chloroquine and, and, and hydroxychloroquine we have, we really need to reserve that for the, for the patients who are super-duper ill and, and, and have the best chance of having an effect from it. Yeah. You know, can you talk about that a little bit more? You know, what, what's the decision tree about when to start those agents um, and, and who, who gets those? What does that look like? And I'm sure every every health system has their own decision tree, but but right now, and I think this is true for most large hospitals, we just have a limited amount of hydroxychloroquine, and so uh, unfortunately, you know, you know, in a perfect world, if somebody, for example, if, if we use the uh, <clears throat> if we use the uh, 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 metaphor of somebody who's got, for example, bacterial pneumonia, right? So you suspect somebody has mm-hmm. bacterial pneumonia, and you send a sputum culture off or whatever you want to do. We don't wait until that sputum culture comes back to initiate treatment. We start imperative treatment, right? And that's the standard mm-hmm. of care. Um, unfortunately, because of the limited supplies of, of, of therapy and the fact that, again, we don't have good randomized control trial data suggesting it works, those two things are kind of a one-two punch for us to be giving these drugs prophylactically to people. We really should be reserving their use for people who have you know, moderate to severe symptoms. So in my hospital, that's probably going to mean people on high uh, flow nasal cannula or higher levels of oxygen mm-hmm. requirements the ICU or vented or on pressors. Those are the people that we're going to prioritize treatment for. And I suspect that's going to be true in most other hospitals until we get a, a higher supply. Now, I was reading where Myelin and some of these other generic companies are promising, you know, to have a million tablets on the market in the next 12, you know, uh, you know, tw- uh, you know, two weeks or so. That would be terrific if that would, were, were to happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit, you know, I just was reading um, up on some of the, the treatment options this morning, and one of the news articles out there actually mentioned um, convalescent plasma. Um, it, it, can you talk a little bit about what you're thinking about that and what, what that would look like? Sure. So, you know, uh, some of the more veteran pharmacists in the audience might remember back in the old, old, old days where we didn't have a lot of antibiotics on the market or had no antibiotics on the market. So we're talking either the pre-antibiotic era or the kind of the peri-antibiotic era, um, where if people got certain infections, um, that what would happen was they would actually get horse serum where somewhere uh, um, investigators would give the organism to a horse and the horse may or may not live through that, but they, they basically drew off antibodies from the horse that would contain the antibodies against the, the organism and give them to the patient. If you ever had a patient who said they had serum sickness, especially a, a very elderly patient who said, yeah, you know, I'm, I have serum sickness to this drug, uh, um, the reason they, they might say that is that when you obviously give a foreign antibody to a human, that they get, they, they, they have this kind of constellation of symptoms like fever and joint swelling and, and chills and stuff like that. But that was all, all the only treatment. So in the 21st century, we are a little more sophisticated, I think. And so now what they're looking at is, is giving, um, uh, uh, drawing plasma from humans who have, who have convalesced and gotten better from COVID-19, try to, 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 you know, purify their plasma as much as possible just to basically break it down to just the, this, this, their immune globulin antibodies. And then in patients, and this would probably be in patients with very severe disease, they would give that mm-hmm. to as, as and so, again, it's, it's listed as a potential treatment in several sets of guidelines. Uh, there's multiple guidelines out there, and, and they all list it as a potential treatment, but none are recommended at this point because we just have zero data on it. But that might be a future treatment, yes. Yeah, okay. Thanks for covering that. Well, you know, you mentioned that was one of the things we used before we had vaccines and antivirals and, and all of that on the market. And, um, you know, I know there's been a class of drugs um, that came out 
uh, you know, what, 10, 10 or so years ago, the um, interleukin-6 receptor antagonist. And I know, I, you know I'm seeing reports of phase three trials, you know, with 300 to 400 patients worldwide um, for patients who are hospitalized with severe COVID-19. Um, does that look promising? Um, you know, what, what is the literature showing around that that you've seen so far? So, so the theoretical basis for that is that the reason that that these patients tend to do tend to do very very bad is uh, uh, it, it, once they develop acute respiratory distress syndrome is the cytokine storm where basically all these mm-hmm. pro-inflammatory chemicals in their bloodstream just go crazy. And uh, 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 information from China suggested that one of the big players in this cytokine storm was interleukin six, which does play a big role in, in the inflammatory reaction. So. It, it, you know, uh, in China, they had tried it, kind of in individual cases in super severe patients who are just not doing very well, giving them a single dose of tocolizumab. Tocolizumab is actually uh, an IL-6 antagonist, and it's on. It's actually FDA approved in the United States for rheumatoid arthritis. And so uh, they were giving that drug, and you know, in, in single patients with very severe disease. And again, anecdotally, uh, found that it did help. Now, and again, you know, like single cases, two, three cases, stuff like that. That's really the 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 the, the uh, most data we have currently. You're right. There are several uh, places in China and elsewhere who are undergoing uh, studies. You know, actual you know uh, controlled studies for it. But again, those studies won't be available for months. And so what some have recommended, and again, the guidelines have been pretty much we don't have any data, so we can't make any recommendation on it. But I have certainly seen other hospitals utilize uh, a tocolizumab as a single dose for very severe uh, COVID-19 with ARDS. Uh, but again, that's going to be tricky because, uh, you know, it, just like the, the chloroquine compounds, it's hard to get. And, and we at our health system have exactly one dose. And that's so basically wow. we'll be able to treat one patient and we can't get it from anybody else right now. Yeah. So, wow. uh, um, I, I, again, there's going to be there's no there's no randomized controlled t- trial data. If you had a patient, especially mm-hmm. a younger patient, you know, with not a lot of other comorbidities who might be like, you know, likely to survive this and, and end up with a decent quality of life afterwards. Could you consider it? I think it's probably, again, it's probably not unreasonable to consider a single dose of the drug is probably not likely to hurt anybody. It's pretty pricey compared to some of the other stuff we've used. But I, I, I could certainly see that, that thought of, of just, you know, hey, we got to try, you know, whatever we can in these patients, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So for, for most of us out there and the patients that we'll see, it's really just about infection prevention and, and then control measures. Like you said, you have these symptoms, use telehealth, stay home as long as you can until you have those uh, severe shortness of breath symptoms. Um, right. Sounds like that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're up against. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, a- anything else treatment-wise you want to touch on today? Um, I know you'll be back and we're going to dig into a little bit more about ACE inhibitors and ARBs and NSAIDs and, and talk more about that um, on the 8th. Um, but anything just really around these treatment measures for COVID that we should be considering? Yeah, I think I think very quickly we can talk about about three and and I'm gonna I'm gonna, my, my uh, drug information student Kaylin's done a tremendous job this block really trying yeah. to collect all this information in. I mean, it's literally to the point where I'm checking PubMed, you know, twice a day because there's a, there's 10 new, 10 new hits on PubMed with, with new information. So it's just, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but um, I think, you know, everyone's talking about, about kind of three big classes of medication that are potential treatment. Um, the first is the chloroquine derivatives, you know, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And then there was a study that from France that looked at that, the addition of azithromycin to that. And then mm-hmm. uh, the, 
and then the HIV combo Coletra um, has also been uh, been been used for it. Um, so you know, uh, um, would you know, Caitlin? Did you want to talk a little bit about what you found and all this sort of stuff? Yeah. Sure. If we start off with hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug that's known to have some antiviral capacities and other viruses, there was an in vitro study that showed anti-COVID-19 capacity. Um, mm -hmm. Randomized controlled trials of its use, preliminary data from some case series in China have suggested that chloroquine decreased pneumonia exacerbation. Uh, that it decreased pneumonia exacerbations, improved findings on lung imaging, and shortened disease course. Sorry. No worries. I know you guys are fitting this in with everything you're doing. No worries at all. Go ahead, Caitlin. Sorry, I'll step back a little bit. Uh, no, no randomized control trial was published yet, but uh, Gao and colleagues in China suggested that chloroquine in a group of over 100 patients led to decreased pneumonia mm -hmm. exacerbations improved findings on lung imaging and also shortened disease course potentially, although again, this is not a randomized controlled trial. Yeah, so basically ret retrospective, a retrospective case series essentially, but, it, but in 100 patients, so. Okay. And then hydroxychloroquine as a derivative with a similar mechanism in vitro studies also suggest that it might be more potent in its antiviral capacity in comparison to chloroquine in a viral cell line, and so it has been uh, used for certain patients with COVID-19 who are hospitalized and treated, as we previously discussed. Uh, so some of the advantages of these drugs are that they are FDA approved, commercially available, and we kind of know their side effect profile and pretty safe uh, medications. Um, but again, there's no and, Yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say pretty safe, you know, when used in the hospital. And so, you know, a lot of our listeners are in community settings, um, you know, and we're but I, but I, I think but... that's I think it's important because mm -hmm. I've read on several uh, message boards and stuff like that the fact that unfortunately for whatever reason yeah. there's been a real run on on hydroxychloroquine on the outpatient side as physicians are either prescribing yeah. uh, the drug for themselves for prophylaxis or they're prescribing it for patients that they have that think are high risk for prophylaxis and I think it's important to say we have no data on prophylaxis at all zero right. and, and yeah no. What little data we have is really in the treatment realm in, in patients with moderate severe disease, and we really need to be reserving the drug for that. I know several uh, boards of pharmacy in different states have basically yeah. passed uh, emergency measures basically saying that unless you have RA or lupus, you know, you've already been on the medication, that, that uh, you can't practically hand out, the, hand out the medication. I think that's a good thing. So pharmacists are going to be confronted with this, I think. And I think one of the things they can say in the community is that we just don't have any data suggesting that it helps in, in prophylaxis at this point. Now, there may be some data out there coming up, but currently we don't have anything. And while Plaquenil is a fairly safe medication, I mean, especially for the five days or seven days you'd be taking it, uh, it can cause mm -hmm. QT so you have some people with cardiac problems or on other QT prolonging drugs, that could be an issue. So, I mean, you know, yep. it, you know, it, again, you know, what we're looking for is low-risk, high-reward situations where we would use these medications given the paucity of data. And in a hospitalized patient who's super sick, that low-risk, mm -hmm. high-reward, and someone who has doesn't have any symptoms, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, important that this is for hospitalized patients. Um, Kayla, I think you were going to go through um, azithromycin and then the um, HIV combo. So, I mean, if you want to keep going, that was really good info. 
So there was one study, it was a non-randomized study in which 20 patients received hydroxychloroquine and they compared that to a group of 16 control patients who didn't receive hydroxychloroquine and this was done in France. And this study resulted with the primary outcome to see who was negative for COVID-19 on day six. The hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. group percent of patients testing negative on day six versus 12.5% of the control group testing negative on day six. And six of the hydroxychloroquine patients were also treated with azithromycin to potentially prevent a bacterial co-infection, and they were claimed to fare better in the trial. And by, by fa fare better, basically what they just said, they had e they, their time to negative viral uh, positivity was even better. So basically their, their time to having a negative uh, a viral load was much faster than even the, the okay. Plaquenil group. But that was it. There was no real difference in clinical outcomes or anything like that. So there's been a lot of, of experts in the ID world who kind of, you know, said, hey, let's put the brakes on, on this combo until we get some more information because, again, low risk, high reward, but azithromycin also prolongs the QT interval. So, again, especially in elderly right. patients want that two combo there, you know, it would, I think it would have been different if the study would have shown, hey, you know, it gets people out of the ICU quicker, or hey, you know, they, you know, they, they, their symptoms resolve faster. That might have been something I think we, we've been a little more willing to, to lean on that combo. But right now, I think that, that, that most experts are saying that we, you know, we, until we get more clinical data, uh, this study, it was, again, it was just really a case series. We probably shouldn't uh, really hang our hat in using a lot of azithromycin plus, plus Plaquenil, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And Kaletra, Kaletra, real quick. Lopinavir, Ritonavir, or Kaletra, a protease inhibitor approved for HIV has had several case reports and studies um, that has shown potential benefit, mostly in treatment of SARS and MERS outbreaks in 2003 and 2012, respectively. So that's why it was one of the first agents used in China for treatment of COVID-19 as a related coronavirus strain. Um, mm -hmm. And then after these case reports were published with potential benefits, unfortunately, there was a randomized control trial published just last week in the New England Journal of Medicine, which resulted in no difference in time to clinical improvement mm -hmm. or mortality in the 199 patients included in China, half of whom received just standard of care and half who got the lopinavir, ritonavir plus the standard of care. And the percentage of patients with detectable viral RNAs at the various points were also similar between the group. But the main difference is that lopinavir ritonavir did lead to additional GI side effects, resulting in 13.8% of the patients having to discontinue the study drug. So unfortunately, the main limitation of the uh, use of lopinavir ritonavir is that the limited evidence, but the randomized control trial showing no benefit means that the risks are going to outweigh those benefits that we don't necessarily see or have confirmed. Right. And that, that study has also been uh, criticized because it was, again, a small study. Um, there were some of the secondary outcomes that did favor the combo, the Coletra combo versus standard of care. But the bottom line is that, you know, again, we're, we're trying to make the best information with the best data we have. Uh, Coletra does, does seem to have significant GI side effects. It is not inexpensive. And there, there is a, yeah. an entire population of patients who require this drug to live you know, HIV patients. So it's one of those things where, where I think a lot of experts have kind of, again, said, well, I think we're going to back off from using Kaletra at, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. Um, well, that was really helpful just to get a quick overview of what's out there in the literature. And I know what changes day to day. So Caitlin, I appreciate you, you pulling that and talking us through that. Um, 
Jeff, can, can you summarize? So if I look at, okay, treatment summary, like we know one prophylaxis, there's no data out there. There's there's nothing that's going to help with, with, you know, prevention of this medication wise. And then as far as some of the different um, medications we've talked through, it's a lot of case reports, small clinical trials, like you said, nothing's randomized. And all of this is really limited to severe patients where it's that risk reward situation. So, um, I don't want to say it's trial and error because there's thought going into that, but just at this time, um, it just seems like there's a lot out there and we're not going to know more. Um, so we're we're willing to treat these patients to try to help them when they're in that severe state. Um, but for most of us, it, it just really goes all back to infection control. I mean, exactly. And, and in the right? end, yeah, absolutely correct. And, you know, in the end, the best thing we can do is, you know, do the things that we've all had beat into our heads for the last two weeks, which is, you know, try to practice social distancing, um, try, you know, try to, 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 you know, if you're sick, try to stay home, um, you, know, you know, don't only go out when you need to go out and stuff like that, you know, all those things. And, 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 again, I don't want to belabor that stuff. For the frontline pharmacists, you know, I, in, especially in the community, you know, I, you know I've, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff on the different boards about, you know, what should we be doing and stuff like that. And I see, I've even seen places where, you know, the, of their own accord, people have uh, put in like kind of plastic shields in between them and, and, yeah. and the and, and I, you know, to be frank, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. I think that's, you know, I mean, again, mm -hmm. it doesn't do us any good to have an entire wave of community pharmacists get sick. So um, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I would personally, you know, can, you know, think it's not a bad idea to try and take what, what infection control methods that you have. Um, certainly we, you know, we're probably not going to be handing out N95 masks to every community pharmacist. I wish we could. I wish we should. We should. And certainly that, that you know, I, mm -hmm. I think we could. But I think also the thing we have to keep in mind is that even regular surgical masks should help. And so if you have access to a surgical mask um, and, and you can kind of, you know, you know you, there are some, uh, some guidelines now from CDC about reusing surgical masks. You don't take it off every five minutes and stuff like that and use a new one. Um, I think that, mm -hmm. that, that anything that you can do to help protect you also helps protect your patients as well. Absolutely. Yeah, really important to protect this workforce and make sure we're out there to help patients. So appreciate that that uh, little summary there with the mask. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, I know both of you have a, a lot to get back to. Um, anything else, any closing words around where we're at with this um, right now? And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone can, can, you know, there's, there's nobody out there who can really predict what's going on. But I think before we, before we go crazy, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you guys follow uh, Z Dog, um, the physician Z Dog. He's a very, very yeah. active on social, very funny guy. And he had a, had a, a YouTube video that, that really hit me, you know, that I thought is something we, I think we also kind of keep in the back of our minds is that, you know, there are three things that make a pandemic truly terrifying. And, they are one that it that it predominantly affects kids and, and, and infants because obviously those are you know those are the most precious you know people in, in our in our society. Two, as a, that it has a very very high mortality rate you know that it kills most of the people that it infects. And three, that it, it is it, that it's it's transmissible in the air. That basically just you know it can be floating around the air and you can be walking down the street and get it and then and then and then get infected. And COVID doesn't exhibit any of those right. COVID does not preferentially uh, uh, um, um, uh, afflict children, you know, and I'm not saying it's good that it afflicts the elderly, but but we don't see that, that, that people under the age of 50 are actually fair, have a fairly low mortality with this, which is the second thing. Overall mortality is really low, and the numbers that we are touting by the CDC all that are almost almost certainly going to be over-exaggerated because we're not, the denominator is wrong. We don't know how many people are infected or asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms and never get tested. And three, 
Um, it is only spread by droplets. It is, you know, it's not a magical substance in the air that if, you know, that if you, you know, you know, walk down the street within 40 feet of somebody who's got it and they breathe it into the air, you can get it too. It's, it's spread the exact same way influenza is, and we know how to control influenza, which is, you know, infection control procedures. So keep that in mm -hmm. mind before annex. I, I just couldn't close on a better note. Um, that is really comforting to me and, and I think all of us out there. So I appreciate those, those last words. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks so much for joining today's episode of Thrive Subscribe. We're back each and every week on Thursday to share insight and inspiration so you can grow your community pharmacy practice. Don't forget to listen in each week on Saturdays as we've partnered with CPSN USA to share best practices during the COVID pandemic. Uh, to claim credit for today's CE, you'll want to go to learn.ceimpact.com. So that's learn.ceimpact.com. When you go to the website, you'll enter the code COVIDPODCAST in all lowercase letters. So that's COVIDPODCAST. You'll do that in the white box on the left-hand side of your screen and then hit submit. Um, your credit will go to CPE Monitor. You'll need to just click on My Courses. Find the course title COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines, Testing, and PPE, and then you'll complete the exam and evaluation. If you don't have an account with CE Impact, you'll need to do that first, um, and then all of your information will go over to um, CPE Monitor. If you have any questions, feel free to contact the CE Impact team at team at ceimpact.com. And all this information on how to claim credit is available in the show notes um, of this week's podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you back next week. The Thrive Subscribe podcast is brought to you by Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com, where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.